Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. Our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 1 through 16. And it's my hope and prayer that God will add a blessing to the hearing and the believing of these ancient words. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Ebrezite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all Midianites, leaving none alive. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Friends, will you pray with me? Almighty God, may the words of my mouth And may the meditations of all of our hearts gathered in this place today, may they be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I was greeting some of you before the service, we were lamenting the fact that it's already August and it feels like that summer is about to end and end rapidly. This is the time of year when we begin to shift our attention on three dreaded words, especially at my house, back to school. 
This year, for the first time, I'm going to have two kids in high school, and since it's August, one of my sons, who plays a fall sport, is already getting out of bed at dark o'clock to make his way to 7 a.m. cross-country runs. Anybody want to join him at 7 in the morning? It's tough, but he has to do it, and he enjoys running. But this has also made me think about times in my own journey and in my own life when I played sports as a youngster. I have shared this with some of you who attend Roots Revival on Wednesdays, but I want to remind you, if you don't know it, I was a very special kind of athlete in my youth. And keep in mind that whenever I was young, there were really only three sports that one could choose from. They all involved a ball and required some sort of catching and throwing. Baseball, football, and basketball. I want you to know that I was equally bad at all three of those. <laughs> and if I was born a dog, I would have been called the runt of the litter because I was always the smallest and the weakest and the slowest. In sports like baseball and football and basketball that required catching a ball, forget about it because even though the spirit was willing, the flesh was weak. I could swat at a ball in the air, but rarely, even despite my prayers, would it land softly into my hands and would I complete the catch. If I attempted to throw a baseball, perhaps I might be trying to throw it to the first baseman. I would try, I would aim, but it might go to third base instead. So then came the summer between my fifth and sixth grade years in school when I was at the peak of my athletic ability. <laughs> my dad saw an ad on social media. Now this was the 1980s and social media looked like this. You got out a piece of typing paper and a black magic marker and you wrote words on it like, come out for sixth grade football, five o'clock, Monday afternoon, August the 5th. And so you would tape that up to the counter at the gas station. We only had two gas stations in our community. And so if you taped one up at both gas stations, the likelihood that all the community members would see it was very high. So my dad was at the store one day. He was filling his car up with gas. He went inside to pay and voila, he saw the sign. And he was super pumped and super excited. So he came home and he encouraged me to sign up for this brand new sixth grade football team. So I did, and I don't understand why, but I went out for the team, and on the first evening of practice, behind the middle school on the practice field, there were about 74 other boys, 75 of us in total. It was early August. The school system had not given the field its back-to-school haircut yet, so the grass was up about eight inches, way over our ankles. We live in North Carolina after all, so the cicadas, which were in the trees, furnished the background music. And because it was 5 o'clock p.m., there was plenty of heat and humidity for us to try to breathe through. After some brief introductory remarks, the coach said to us boys, I want you to run around the practice field so I can see how fast you run and also to see who will come in first. I can't remember the name of the first place finisher, but so we'll just call him Chris. 
I was the smallest on the team, and then there was everybody else in the middle, and then there was Chris, who was this much taller than the rest of us. And Chris bounded around the practice field like a gazelle in an African safari. He just left us in the wind, and it looked like he just glided across the grass, feet never touching the ground. When we made it all back to the finish line, the coach congratulated Chris for, for his speed and for how quickly he ran and that he beat all the other boys. And then he asked this question, if we run that race again, who thinks they can beat Chris? Many of the boys jumped up and down and said, yeah, I can beat him, let's do it again. And there was me and about two other people that shook our heads and said, there is no way that we will ever beat that kid. So the coach told the boys that jeered and cheered and said, yes, we can do it. He said, prove it. So they took off for another lap around the field. And as they were halfway around, way out of earshot, the coach turned and said to us remaining, winning the race, boys, means you have to strive for it. You can't let Chris beat you before you've even tried. In other words, being the smallest, the weakest, and the slowest has more to do with attitude than with physical abilities. So today we meet someone in scripture that my sixth grade self identifies with, Gideon. Gideon was called and given a mission by God, but Gideon wasn't even willing to try. Gideon said, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. He chose to focus on his weaknesses rather than trusting God to give him the strength and the power to conquer Israel's foes. Let's give Gideon's story a little context. We find ourselves this morning in the book of Judges, and by this point in Israel's history, they have settled in the land of Canaan. But when they get there, they of course know they are not alone. There are other people living in the land and other people that pass through the land. And in a thorough reading of Judges, we find that Judges contains a repetitive cycle. It goes like this. Israel does evil in God's sight. God sends an enemy, an oppressor. Israel cries out in distress to God. Then God sends a judge or a deliverer, not a judge like you might think of in a judicial sense who was in a courtroom wearing a robe, but a judge who was a warrior ruler who would lead them to fight against their conqueror. And then after they, after they win the battle and they experience liberation, Israel turns back to its old ways and does evil in the sight of the Lord again, and the cycle repeats itself over and over. So we have found ourselves in the midst of judges, in the midst of one of these cycles, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. But what evil did they do? They worshiped other gods, specifically the god called Baal, who was also known as the rider of the clouds. It was believed that Baal brought rains and blessed the earth, and when Baal came by, all was good. The tribe would have healthy crops and the women would give birth to healthy babies. Whenever the tribe of Israel, being a people dependent upon agriculture, would face a drought in the land, they would get a little anxious, though. And they would turn to this Baal god, the god of their neighbors, and worship him, hoping that they would win Baal's favor so that their crops would be prolific. 
in an element of good and bad choices. They worshipped Baal. And in Israelite history, when, when they worshipped Baal and did something wrong and God sent an enemy, it believed that God was the one who caused them to suffer. So in their minds, God sent the Midianites, who were a nomadic desert people, who would come and conquer and strip their land and, and then take away all their harvest and kill their livestock which is why the scripture tells us that the Midianites were called locust, because they destroyed everything in their path. So the Israelite people have done evil in the sight of the Lord, and here are the Midianites, they are stripping their land, their produce, their livestock, and they cry out to God because they were overpowered and oppressed. God heard their cry, and God sent a prophet And the prophet reminds Israel of its past that God had led them from captivity and bondage from Egypt and led them from their oppressors, drove out their enemies and gave them their land. But the prophet also warned, you have worshipped other gods. You have not listened to me. But even though they made mistakes and had not listened and had worshipped other gods, God moved in their midst God did not leave them alone or abandon. Rather, God called Gideon. The story tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, which was the beginning of a dialogue between Gideon and God. And I really wonder how this dialogue went, and I really wonder how Gideon posed the questions and how he talked to God. I wonder about his inflection. I wonder if he used a little sarcasm, or was he a smart aleck? I wonder if his mama would have said, boy, you're getting too big for your britches. Because I wonder if it sounded a little like this. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. But then God says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? In other words, God was calling Gideon to be part of the solution. But yet Gideon questions, how can I save Israel? I am the weakest and I am among the least. There's more to Gideon's story, but I want to pause and say how many of us have felt called by God in various ways, but yet we have responded like Gideon. Perhaps we can identify with him that we don't have the strength, nor the ability, nor the power to do what it is God calls us to do. I believe in our world, though, that God calls us to do a lot of things. God calls us to serve and to love in beautiful ways. And the reason why, my friends, is because I want to share uh, an observation, something that I have been watching and witnessing, and I hope you will not take this as a judgment, but strictly an observation. 
When the Israelites needed their crops to grow, they, say, they saw that God was irrelevant in their lives. They turned to other gods. So my observation is this. We live in a time when Christianity has become the religion of a minority and the worship of God is irrelevant for people today. I wish I was wrong, but if I were, then I believe our sanctuary this morning would be full of people. We would be crammed in here shoulder to shoulder, wanting and wishing to worship our God together. Again, it's just an observation, not a judgment, but a few Sundays back, the Women's World Cup took place in France, and it aired here in our country on a Sunday morning. Later that evening, I was scrolling through modern-day social media, and I saw various images of venues in our city and all around our land where people were packed into these places shoulder to shoulder, cheering on the women's soccer team. Those images made me realize, wow, the world is paying attention. The world is watching this event. I later learned that an estimated 20 million Americans watched some part of the World Cup that morning. The world was watching, paying attention on a day known for Christian worship. I realize we can worship God any day of the week, but Sunday in our tradition has been our primary day. There really is nothing wrong with soccer or watching a soccer match, but it makes me wonder if 20 million people skipped church that morning, or were they churchgoers in the first place? Which begs the question, is the worship of God irrelevant in our culture today? Some of you might be sitting here thinking, oh my preacher, I skipped church that day to watch the World Cup and now you have gone from preaching to meddling. And if that is you, please know this is not a story about your whereabouts or a sermon about your whereabouts on Sunday morning, but rather just an observation to bring awareness to what we are facing as Christians in our nation and in our world. I believe God calls us to do something about it. And in the United Methodist Church, he has given us a mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And I believe making disciples and transforming the world means that we help people see that God is relevant for their lives today. I hope for a transformed world that will know that there is a God who loves them and is always with them. That when anyone feels oppressed by whatever life may throw at them, that they can find hope. Because friends, I know for all of us, there will be times and have been times when we have needed a source of grace and a source of hope in our lives. Consider the one who stands at the bedside of his spouse who has just had brain surgery and is wondering, will she wake up and be the same person she was before she went to sleep? That person needs to know that God is in that room, that God is present, and that God offers hope. Friends, that person needs to know that God is relevant and active in their lives. They need to know the words, God will never leave us nor forsake us. So we are called to live into this mission of transforming the world, to make God relevant. 
God calls us to be mighty warriors, just like he called Gideon. Now that doesn't mean we pick up a sword and a shield and we fight in battles and we use power and domination, but rather we are called to use love and grace so that others might come to know this God. This God who has done great things in our history and in Israel's history. I believe every one of us is called to engage in the mission of the church. Like Gideon, God has called us to be a solution for God's people. So I hope this morning that you will either be affirmed or encouraged in your mission. Because your mission to help people see this God and how relevant God is might just look like coming to this place for worship on Sunday morning, serving as an usher or a greeter, or reading the scripture, or helping to serve communion, or serving on the altar guild and preparing the elements so that we can celebrate God's love. Your service to others might look like coming to the church on a Tuesday morning and serving in our loaves and fishes ministry that helps people with financial assistance and food aid. It might mean volunteering at Samaritan Inn and being a part of a community that serves food and spends the evening in fellowship with persons who are experiencing homelessness in our community. It might mean that you roll up your sleeves and you drive to the eastern part of our state and help put back together homes that have been ransacked by hurricanes of our past. It might mean that you stick around on a Sunday afternoon and fellowship with our neighbors as they come to love that neighbor and spend time with our youth who are loving on them and helping them and also serving them in our medical clinic. It might mean that you just pray daily for your church and for your ministers. Because friends, if the world sees God as irrelevant, then the rest of us up here on this platform are just as irrelevant in what we do. May God help us. How do we know if we are doing the right thing and if we are making a difference? I have heard many people come back from mission trips and say, I have received a blessing and I know I was blessed more than the people whom I went to serve among. I believe that to be true. But I also believe that blessings are contagious. And when we roll up our sleeves and work and serve, that those blessings leave us and enter into the lives of all whom we encounter. You might wonder how it is that you can help transform the world, how you might help others see that God is relevant. You might identify with Gideon and say, I don't have any gifts. I'm not able to do that. And friends, there are days when I wonder that for myself. But let us not forget the rest of the story, the rest of our passage. When Gideon told God, I am weak and I am among the least, the Lord said, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites. I believe our message this morning is clear. God says, I will be with you and you will transform the world by offering my people hope. This past week, I had the privilege of serving in Vacation Bible School on Monday with an army of volunteers. They served as crew leaders and storytellers and helped make crafts and prepare snacks and sing songs. And there was much that went on behind the scenes for weeks and for months. I imagine Kate's already getting ready for next year's Vacation Bible School because that's how long it takes to pull off such a week. On Monday, 
uh, worked with Mary Isom and Pam Carroll and the children were learning about Pharaoh and how mean and scary he was and how he made the Israelites make bricks. He turned them into slaves and he would not let them leave Egypt. They learned about Moses and his call and how God sent Moses to ask Pharaoh to release the people. And then when he wouldn't, God sent the 10 plagues to eventually convince Pharaoh to let the people go. On Monday, the children learned this Bible point. When we're scared, God is good. When we're scared, God is good. With all my heart, I hope the kids of this church and of our community will remember just how much fun they had last week, especially story time when they encountered a red-headed pharaoh that popped out behind the palace walls and lamented because his favorite cow had died during the plague. But most of all, I hope they will remember the grace and the love that they received. I hope they will grow up and that when they face struggles in their lives and when they face hardships, God will be relevant to them and they will trust God. They will remember the words when we're scared, God is good. And I hope and pray that these words, friends, will be imprinted on their hearts with indelible ink. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you'll consider joining us for worship on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock or Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, or 11. Have a blessed day.